If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In 1923, a new periodical was launched to guide listeners through the BBC's nascent radio offerings. Its name was the Radio Times. Over the coming decades, it not only featured listenings for radio and later TV, but also offered a window into the nation's changing media and social landscape. Now part of Immediate Media, which also publishes this podcast, the Radio Times is marking its centenary this September. Matt Elton assembled a panel of experts to discuss what its archive can reveal about British culture throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. We're here today to mark the centenary of Radio Times magazine, which was first published in September 1923. And I'm joined by a panel of experts to talk through its history and what it tells us about broadcasting in Britain more generally. So before we go any further, could we all introduce ourselves? So I'm David Hendy. I'm the author of the BBC uh, People's History. I'm Tom Loxley. I'm one of the editors of Radio Times. We have two And I'm Rafe Montague, Head of Heritage for Radio Times. Thank you all so much for being here. So before we go any further, there might be people listening who don't know anything about Radio Times, don't know about its history or how it ties in, I suppose, to the wider history of broadcasting in Britain. The first question really then needs to be, when did it start and what were the circumstances that led to it starting? My two colleagues here will be better placed than me to tell you about the detail. But I know that when the BBC began in, in 1922, Lord Reith was very keen to publicise his new broadcasting service. And the newspapers were suspicious of this new competition. So they refused to, uh, to publicise his uh, radio stations. So he decided that the best thing to do was set up his own magazine so that he could print the listings for his own radio stations. I think that's it in a nutshell, but David's the expert. This is precisely the the origin of, of the Radio Times, the newspaper owners basically saying to the BBC... If you want your programmes listed by us, you're going to have to pay the full the full whack, the full advertising rate. <laughs> and actually, there was one magazine that actually carried on printing the programme listings, and that was the Pall Mall Gazette. 
And what happened was the circulation of the Pall Mall Gazette soared in this period. So, so that was a sign that actually there was an appetite among the public for, for knowing what was being broadcast uh, when. And uh, there was a feeling in the air that something like this was needed anyway. So staff at the BBC's Manchester station, 2ZY, proposed uh, in July 1923 the idea of a, a weekly printed uh, program of, of of output, which they said should be of high quality. Um, so I think that, you know, it was in the air, but undoubtedly prompted by the action of newspapers, who, of course, were, were not terribly in favour of the BBC becoming a big beast uh, in their territory. And the BBC was... You know, at this stage, it was just a few months old. So it was a very, very fragile thing. It hadn't even moved into Savoy Hill yet. It was still in in sort of borrowed offices off the Strand. So, you know, this was a critical moment for the BBC. It had to, it had to respond pretty quickly. Not the first time, of course, that the BBC and the newspapers bumped up against each other. There's a long and honourable history. Another piece of uh, useful context is uh, to look at what Arthur Burroughs, the BBC's director of programmes, wrote on the front page of the first edition. He said, Hello, everyone. We will now give you Radio Times, the good new times, the Bradshaw of broadcasting. May we never be late for your favourite wave train. Speed, 186,000 miles per second, five-hour non-stops, family season ticket, first class, 10 shillings a year. So it's very interesting. I'm sure everybody in those days at least knew what Bradshaw was for railway travellers. And so he was making a direct comparison about the need for effectively a broadcasting timetable that everyone had in their home. And what's very striking is that very first issue a quarter of a million copies were printed and it sold out very, very quickly. And it was, you know, just a few months later, uh, they were printing 600,000, 700,000 copies and it was pretty well selling uh, all of those copies. So, so the appetite was there right from the beginning. And that idea of a sort of Bradshaw of broadcasting obviously is is at the heart of what the Radio Times was trying to do. But that very first issue has... 13 pages of program listings, but it also has 12 pages of adverts and it has seven pages of articles and commentary. And, and so it was always, right from the start, doing something more than just giving bald information about mm. what programs are on when. There was a sort of a, a, a proselytizing aspect to it where, you know, the, the BBC, for a start, was very keen on trying to establish the reputation of broadcasting to explain what broadcasting was. It was still a very new phenomenon. So the Radio Times is, is, is really important to sort of, it, it helps shape the public image of broadcasting and helps shape the public image of the BBC right from the beginning. Indeed, it was un under the main masthead. It used to read the official organ of the BBC because, of course, there were no other broadcasters around. So, I mean, it might as well have just said the official organ of broadcasting. But anyway, the official organ of the BBC. Interesting that, it, that from its earliest days, it was more than just the listings magazine because that's very much something that runs all the way through. And that's something that we can talk about in terms of the way it offers a window into change society across the decades in, in between. Yeah. Before we do that, though, was there an idea when it first started of the kind of reader that might enjoy Radio Times? And did that change across the coming decades? Well, I think when you, you look at the early editions, what is very clear is that, I mean, yes, of course, it's for people who want to know what is being broadcast. But it's also, when you look at the advertising, aimed at people who relish the idea of owning a wireless or maybe a second one or a better one or buying better valves. I mean, the predominant theme of the early advertising is valves, mod modulators, better batteries, as well as the wireless sets themselves, which became sort of lovely pieces of furniture in some cases. So in one respect, it was very much sort of to do with, uh, you know, the actual physical equipment and those who, who rather enjoyed tinkering with it. 
But interestingly, a little later, the, the then editor, Maurice Gorham, actually wrote down how he saw the average reader at the time. And he, he wrote, uh, the person we have been accustomed to personify in the office is the cabman's wife. This really average listener will probably buy the paper primarily for the programme pages. That is why they will always remain the backbone of the paper, to make sure listeners read as much as possible of the Radio Times and to make what they have read there help them to understand and appreciate their broadcast programmes. And I think that's that's brilliant in a way because it actually touches on that sort of Rethian ethos mm. of the BBC, which is to sort of to lead listeners gently from the sort of lower slopes of culture to, to the higher slopes of culture to kind of, you know, offer sort of tantalizing bait of something appealing and familiar, but to also try and expose people to something less familiar. So there's a conception there that the reader of the Radio Times isn't just a sort of passive consumer. They're someone who can learn about broadcasting and through articles that go behind the scenes that explain the art of radio drama or the significance of a, of a particular piece of classical music, that through that means the Radio Times would would encourage more tolerance and understanding of more difficult kinds of programme and that those more difficult kinds of programmes would then sort of, uh, to use kind of slightly modern terms, would land more mm. easily with with readers. And, and things like the letters page of Radio Times, again, right from the start, was, wasn't just performing the idea of kind of public accountability. The bosses of the BBC felt that publishing letters from listeners, including even quite acerbic ones, <laughs> attacking the programmes, was actually going to be a good thing for producers lower down the food chain because they would be reminded, these, these producers who were kind of well-educated and, and upper-middle-class by and large, would be reminded of the realities of public taste and that they would respond accordingly. So here's an example of a letter from a listener that was published on the 1st of September 1939. I have just heard the first Wagner prom of the season and there must be a large number of musical cranks at large to tolerate such meaningless tripe. <laughs> um, there you go published in the Radio Times. Um, so, so that relationship with the reader stroke listener yeah. was viewed by the BBC hierarchy as, I mean, to quote the exact phrase that we used internally, the main link between the BBC and its public. And, and interestingly, today, we still get letters congratulating us on BBC programming or perhaps quite often criticising us for a BBC programme. I mean, we aren't anymore a BBC publication. It's interesting that that legacy still lasts. But I was going to ask, because, Rafe, you mentioned an editor there when you were talking a second ago. Was the first editor Leonard Crockham? Indeed, indeed, yes. And he had previously <laughs> edited a magazine called Titbits. <laughs> Yes, I know. I know. He edited Titbits and was known for his popular touch. And I, in a roundabout way, I found out that Leonard Crockham was fired, I believe, by Lord Reith for being too populist, for taking the Radio Times down market. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But his grandson is the BBC broadcaster Justin Webb. And Justin has written a feature for Radio Times 100th issue, reflecting on his grandfather's influence and talking about actually his genius being able to actually talk to every man and woman. And Lord Reith was a bit huffy and slightly stuffy, it seems, and wasn't overly thrilled with his approach. Hence, uh, his departure after, I don't know how many years, Rafe, I don't know how long Leonard lasted before um, Lord Reith got fed up with him. Well, I, I'm looking forward to seeing Justin Webb's uh, article. Um, I mean, he, he may be shedding new light on this whole matter. That's really interesting. Yes, no, I think I think it's very uh, interesting because Leonard Crockham was not, you know, uh, he lived in home counties suburbia. He was a comfortable middle-class man. 
and uh, obviously he thought that the BBC was there for everyone. And he wanted to make sure that the magazine that was publicising what the BBC was doing could be read by everyone. And this was a this was a creative tension that was just at the heart of the BBC right from the beginning. You know, Reith would would try to sort of drag the BBC into a sort of slightly more we should probably say austere upmarket version of itself. But he had many people on the staff who were more attuned with the idea of of entertainment. So someone like Cecil Lewis, who was Arthur Burroughs' deputy, he said, what was the BBC in his mind? It was an entertainment medium. And so really what you get with the BBC and what you get with the Radio Times, actually, after the first sort of few months, is something which is a sort of worked through compromise between the kind of the Reithian uplift and the need for it to sort of speak to a wide readership and a very fast expanding readership because as radio took off in the 1920s, what had started as a sort of minority interest for, you know, men and boys in mm. the suburbs playing with their vowels <laughs> and their crystal <laughs> sets was becoming something that was of much wider appeal, much more part of the sort of fabric of domestic life, involving women listening much more. And and that, of course, touches on that sort of that gendered mm. notion of who the target reader is. There was one very curious target reader that I came across in the records, and that was... John Watts, who was a producer uh, in Belfast for the BBC, mm. Belfast was regarded rather <laughs> uh, re regarded as quotes the Siberia of the BBC in the <laughs> 1930s, and that that was his words as a producer there. He said that he found it really difficult as a program maker in Belfast to get people in head office, the senior managers of the BBC, to listen to the output of Belfast, to what was happening in Northern Ireland. But he knew that at head office, the senior managers would always see a copy of the Radio Times. So he said that the Radio Times for him had a target readership of the top brass at the BBC mm. and that he would actually pay more attention to writing the billing for Radio Times, get that in first, and then he'd think about the programme afterwards. <laughs> Can we trace the changes in the history of broadcasting through the pages of Radio Times? Well, yes, I would have thought that. I mean, I don't know if this is an apocryphal story, but there was someone at the Radio Times who said that television wouldn't last when it turned up in the 1930s. But, Rafe, you probably know better than I do. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Well, I, I think I think that's true of the BBC generally, and, and Radio Times was reflecting that. 
And, and I think that that attitude persisted actually into the 1950s. But it has to be said, when television started and was launched in 1936, the London edition, which was the only area where television could be received, uh, was turned into a, uh, well, it, the week before television launched, in fact, a special television edition of Radio Times was produced, which really heralded a television with a big fanfare. And for a while, a special television supplement was put inside the magazine. And the idea was that that would be funded by the advertising for televisions. In fact, it in the end didn't sustain itself as a, as a supplement. But I think notwithstanding the scepticism of senior BBC management, actually Radio Times you know, really did uh, give quite a lot of time and attention to television in, in terms of the launch, but the actual listings were tucked away at the back. They were tucked away at the back, but I think you're, you're absolutely right that the Radio Times actually kind of got television. And I think part of that was, you know, the, the crucial person who was in the editor's chair at the time, Maurice Gorham, in the 1930s, he was interested in television and indeed after the war, became head of television very briefly, as well as head of the light programme. And if I remember correctly, it was Rex Lambert, who was editor of The Listener, who had said to uh, Grace Wyndham Goldie, you know, television is of no interest, it won't last, what on earth do you want to write about television for? But it was Radio Times, which was actually... Actually, even before the launch of the full regular service in 1936, when the BBC was doing experimental television broadcasts in 1934, it, it put some listings in. You're absolutely right. They were tucked away at the back. But of course, what we can do with Radio Times is we see in Radio Times the kind of growth and the changes of status of all these different bits of the BBC. So, you know, right at the beginning, 1923, what's in it? just six stations, six radio stations, London and Manchester and Birmingham and so on. And then you get the national and the regional and you get the first regional editions of the Radio Times. And, and then you get television in the 30s, you get the forces programme during the war, you get BBC Two and Colour uh, in the 1960s and from the 80s onwards, satellite, digital and so on. So we can, we, we, we see the sort of the boundaries of broadcasting kind of uh, expanding, expanding and, and changing. But I think the other thing that, that the Radio Times can tell us about the evolution of broadcasting as some more subtle things as well. You can tell from the pages of the Radio Times that you've got broadcasting in the 20s and 30s shifting from something which is sort of ad hoc and experimental to something which is, which is more regular and more predictable, more fixed points in the day, more fixed points in the week, regular series and so on. There's a pattern to the week that emerges and which we now regard as entirely normal for broadcasting. Um, you can tell the shifts from formal to informal that's going on in the BBC and sometimes back again. So, you know, if you look at the Radio Times, suddenly in 1926, it stops referring to presenters on Children's Hour as, as aunts and uncles, you know, a sort of mm. formalisation, if mm. you like. It stops naming the announcers, the news announcers and so on. Again, a kind of a, a move towards formality rather mm. than informality. And the other thing that the Radio Times also helps us with is some of the language. So in the very early days of television, really early days, no one was quite sure what to call people who watch television. Should they be called glancers or teleobservists or lookers-in? It was actually the Radio Times that pushed the idea that it should be a shortened version of the word televiewer, and it should be viewer. And so Radio Times there is sort of actually instrumental in kind of creating one of those words and terms that is now just completely normal. Creating TV viewers? Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. That's very gratifying to hear. I mean, Radio Times has always had to adapt to the to the changing nature of broadcasting as technology drives the change and the broadcasters seek an audience. We've got to go with them and we always have done and as you say david we, we you know the anomaly of, of a magazine that's primarily these days about television being called radio times it's only you know frankly would be lost on anyone arriving from beyond the, these shores something that's worth remembering is that occasionally 
in the history of Radio Times, you can look at cause and effect working the other way. By that, I mean that the Radio Times influences broadcasting. <laughs> so here's an example. The editors that the Radio Times had in the late 20s and, and the 1930s, people like you know Walter Fuller and later people like Eric Mashevitz and Maurice Gorham, they talk a very eloquently about how their role at Radio Times meant that they were in touch with everything and everyone at the BBC. They saw the whole of the operation in a way that lots of people didn't inside the BBC. And Eric Mashevitz's big invention on radio in 1933 was In Town Tonight, hugely popular live Saturday night magazine show. And it seems as if he got his idea from editing the Radio Times. The Radio Times was this lively magazine which had some serious items, some light items, but nothing too serious and nothing too light, everything fairly short and accessible and following in quick succession. And that was the model that he used for his radio programme, which became a hugely popular hit. So it is possible to see the Radio Times actually exerting an influence on the BBC, not just always the other way around. We live now in a world where there's multiple channels, multiple broadcasters. One of the big moments in this history is the launch of commercial TV back in the 50s. How did that change broadcasting and how did that change Radio Times? Well, in, in the 50s, Radio Times would only have carried the listings for the BBC. And in fact, that carried on all the way up until 1991, I think, when there was a, a deregulation brought in by the government at the time. And the BBC was able to carry the listings for the commercial television. What's interesting is actually, Radio Times has always been at its best, I think, when it can get across the canvas of broadcasting at its absolute fullest. I always say to people that, you know, they say, well, what's in the magazine, you know, if, if, if listings and what else do you put in there? Well, we can put anything in there. We're, our, our canvas is as broad as broadcasting itself. And so the opportunity that was presented in the early 1990s to start to cover Channel 4, ITV, and then soon after that, the satellite television that came along gave rise to a, a whole new range of features and a scope that the magazine could have that wouldn't have existed before. And we have seen a very similar effect with the streaming services arrival in the last, you know, half dozen years. Suddenly, we can be where the action is, and not just restricted to being the sort of house magazine of the BBC. But commercial television had its own magazine, of course. And, and, of course, they had the advantage of calling it TV Times. Indeed. Um, but uh, what's interesting is that you can see Radio Times responding. It, it's very striking, even if you just look at the, the front covers, that in 1955 you're seeing more full-page images of celebrities on the front cover of the Radio Times in a way that really did not happen in the 30s and 40s. I mean, there are some beautiful Radio Times covers in, in, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, but in 1950s, it's it's becoming a little bit more concerned with celebrities. You can tell it's, it's anxious and that the BBC is anxious. And what I think is also quite interesting is that by the time you get to the 1960s, I think the BBC has sort of regained its confidence. It's a kind of, it's an expansive, confident era begins again. You've got Hugh Carlton Green as the director general, you know, a very sort of progressive, confident director general who basically says to program makers, feel free to kind of experiment and push the boundaries, even offend people. You've got the opening of Television Centre. You've got the start of BBC Two. Mm. Uh, and then later in the decade, you've got colour TV uh, uh, and, and so on. And the revenue is coming in from the licence fee quite nicely and so on. And, and Radio Times does sort of reflect that. You know, the 1960s and the early 70s, it feels like a, a confident era where the BBC is less worried about competition from ITV. It's sort of, it's still competing. Mm -hmm. It's still concerned with ratings, but it's kind of confident that it's not going to be, as perhaps it once feared, mm. totally wiped out by the arrival of commercial television. Of course, having a monopoly on the listings, as, as Radio Times did all the way up until the 90s, did bring with it a certain artistic freedom when it came to creating the covers of 
Radio Times because, of course, if people wanted to know what was on the BBC, they had to buy your magazine regardless of what you put on the cover. So you didn't get involved in those newsstand punch-ups that, that, that easily happen if you're competing hard with rivals for floating voters at the newsstand. And David referred to it there. There's a fine tradition of illustration, for instance, that, that runs through the Radio Times. And actually, in the 1970s, some very striking magazine covers that stand up as great pieces of graphic design. And a lot of that happened when the BBC had a monopoly on its listings and when the Radio Times had a kind of free run at front covers because it, it, it wasn't involved in a newsstand battle for attention. People had to buy the magazine if they wanted to know what was on. Yes, I mean, looking at the artists who have been commissioned to do either covers or artwork for the inside of the magazine through the years is just fantastic. Uh, the war artist Christopher Neverson did the 1937 coronation, Rex Whistler, Christmas edition, Paul Nash, Edward Ardizzoni did quite a few covers, Edward McKnight Carfer, and then some, you know, straddled the war and went into the 1950s. One or two particularly stand out, actually. Victor Reaganum did 42 covers for us. Eric Fraser, 25. Peter Brooks, 15. And these are you know, absolute design classics. And in fact, the constraints of the medium, which uh, originally the magazine was simply black and white, just a black plate on white paper. And then with a few editions in the 1930s, spot colour was introduced. So you had a black plate and maybe a yellow plate or a red plate or a green plate. Um, and so the artists really had to work with that, but it, it made for very bold and simple images. And in fact, it was only at around the time of the launch of Radio 1 in 1967 that Radio Times had a colour cover every week. And that, that favoured photography up to that point, photography, we certainly had photographic covers, but the strongest were always illustrated. Once we had full colour, photography could be used with greater impact. Rafe, you mentioned there are some really big social events, obviously the Second World War, the coronation. Are there moments when we can see Radio Times having a particularly close relationship to the British people or perhaps reflecting big events in a kind of meaningful way? Absolutely. And I think there is a difference between big national events and events that are important in broadcasting. With the latter, often, the, as I mentioned earlier, you know, television was initially only available in London. So it was only the London edition of the magazine that trumpeted it. Um, and it was the same with BBC Two. There wasn't a big splash for BBC Two when it f first launched because it wasn't available everywhere. And indeed, the first week of colour in July 1967 was actually a Wimbledon cover, and it just said, you know, now in colour underneath, because there was no point in trumpeting something that wasn't widely available. But with national events, such as the coronation, well, Radio Times has, has actually only covered, straddled three coronations even now, the Olympics, the moon landing, uh, the 1966 Football World Cup, they were events which were anticipated and the magazine really pulled out the stops. But it's interesting that, you know, there are also other covers that are very significant in the nation's history but were not particularly lavish. The death of King George VI, for example, that was a, a very hurriedly produced uh, edition which had to make a very sad announcement. The start of the Second World War, a supplementary edition was brought out in a great hurry. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, when we look at these great landmarks, some have very special colour covers, other are actually really quite in themselves ordinary, but they represent something important. That wartime one that, that you mentioned is particularly interesting because you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's pretty austere. It's just a, a black and white image of, of Broadcasting House. But it's got a significant slogan slapped across the front, which is Broadcasting, broadcasting carries, carries on. on. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and of course, I mean, we know that the idea of the people's war, you know, there's a lot of mythology around it. It can be exaggerated. But... But that phrase, broadcasting carries on, is deeply symbolic of what was going to be the BBC's role during the war. That if this was a sort of total war, the home front mattered 
as much as the you know, the military front. People at home had their part to play in terms of managing with food rationing and and observing the blackout and so on. And the BBC was part of the fabric of home front wartime experience. And you can sense this in the pages of the Radio Times. It had to judge the mood of the nation when, in fact, there wasn't one single mood. Mm. Uh, you know, there was a desire for information. There was fear. There was hope. Uh, there was a desire for escape. And so the BBC is sort of juggling with all of these. It's offering escape. It's offering entertainment. It's pricking the pomposity of officialdom. And it's doing all that. And it's informing people about the state of the war. So that's a kind of significant moment that the BBC captures. I, I, I think that's really, really interesting. When the lockdown occurred, and I just got into the editor's chair at that point, it was about 10 days before the lockdown occurred. This is back actually. in 2020. Back that, in yeah. 2020, when the pandemic took hold. I think, and I'm based this on the correspondence with the readers, the emails, the communication we had with them, the BBC played a very similar role. I mean, it was obviously it wasn't a war, but the role the, the BBC played in our readers' lives at a time when they were told they couldn't go out, they couldn't socialise, they couldn't meet people, they didn't really know what was going on. There was a lot of people feeling rather scared, certainly unsettled. And actually, the uh, television not just the BBC, but television in general, proved to be a resource that they could fall on and use to help make sense of those tricky few months. We saw our sales go up in the pandemic. Now, anyone who knows anything about print and paper publishing since the digital revolution knows that sales don't really go up. But we saw our sales week in, week out go up at that point. The same happened during the Second World War. Although the magazine page count got less and less, it went down to a mere 20 pages by the end of the war. The circulation went up. It's in, in 1939, 2.5 million. Um, by the end of the war, nearly 4 million. So the same, same thing happened then. This is really interesting because TV is quite often still written off as being low culture or mm. ephemeral in some way. Mm. Does this show us that perhaps Radio Times and TV is more central to British culture than perhaps is sometimes told to be the case? I w yes, but I would say that. <laughs> but David referred to it earlier. You know, there's clearly been a tension at the heart of the BBC about, about what sort of culture it should be covering for a long time. But I think the preconceptions about television that is sort of based in a kind of 1950s, 60s snobbery, which may have been a hangover from the radio years, where, you know, television would give you square eyes or it was the idiot box or, you know, you'd turn you more recently into a couch potato. None of these things are particularly desirable. That just doesn't connect with the experience I have of our readers and the way they watch television and the way they use television. In fact, interestingly, we've just done a, a big piece of um, research. Actually, David, with your colleagues down at the University of Sussex with their psychology department, looking into how television makes people feel. An astonishing 21,000 plus people responded to that survey, not just readers of the magazine, users of the website and, and beyond. And I can't reveal the results here because they're all embargoed until our birthday on the 28th of September. But I can say with some confidence that a lot of those preconceptions, which are now more than 50 years old in terms of television being, you know, not necessarily good for you, are way out of date. It plays a fundamental part in people's lives. And you know what? Ruth's idea of entertainment, information and education is still pretty much at the heart of what people want from their television when it comes to their emotional needs. Many of those critiques of television from, from the late 40s, the 50s, the, the 60s, they were wrong at the time as well, I think. I mean, you know, Richard Hoggart, great cultural commentator, had many, many interesting things to say. But when he wrote about television and wrote about it fairly disparagingly, saying all those things that you mentioned about it would dull the brain and so on, 
He did not have his own television set uh, at the time. You know, there was a lot of people attacking television in the post-war years. Actually, Radio Times itself commissioned <laughs> George Bernard Shaw to comment on, on it in 1947 when it was the BBC's Silver Jubilee. What was his verdict? Too much vulgar trash. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, now, I mean, but, of course, Radio Times can actually disprove him because actually you look at the schedule and what you've got there is, yes, you've got kind of variety shows and music hall and and people, I don't know, tearing a telephone directory in half. But you've also got interviews with artists. You've got the Ballet Rombert. You've got wonderful dramas every week, week after week on television, right from the beginning. And so what you've got is that rich mix. And we have to challenge that idea of passivity, that it's mm. a passive thing. I heard recently an interview with Sally Wainwright, the, the TV scriptwriter. She was talking on This Cultural Life and she was talking about how it was television and radio that taught her the craft of writing. It wasn't the theatre for her. It was television and radio. And it was it was series like Coronation Street that that exposed her wonderfully for the first time to kind of working class accents mm. and working class life mm. on the television. And she never went back from that point. And we can think of kind of set piece television programs, Life on Earth or Play for Today or Civilization and so on, that are kind of genuine cultural contributions. But I think that in the end, it's the totality of the output. It's the full range of stuff that matters. And again, here's another quote, Armando Iannucci, who wrote very eloquently about television that he watched growing up in the 70s and the 80s. And he said he would watch in the space of a day or two Monty Python, Horizon documentary about space flight, Morecambe and Wise, Bruce Forsyth's Generation Game. And he said that he would watch those without anyone telling him that only one type of show was for him and not the other. And so that kind of rich mix and a rich mix which is available for all is an extraordinary cultural phenomenon. Yes. And I, I, there is a very real argument to be made that, you know, television is the great popular cultural art form of the last 100 years. And if the Radio Times wasn't across all of that, we wouldn't be as successful as we have been. Given this centrality, we're recording this conversation today in Radio Times' office in London, where I believe you've got an archive of all the back issues. Is that right? What's the value of having something like that, that kind of resource? That is an interesting question because there was a time when people could rightly say, look, broadcasting is ephemeral. Once the programme has gone out, it may never be heard again. It might be repeated once, then it'll be wiped. Or if it was live, it would just go out. So, OK, it was very important to have Radio Times to tell you when it was going to be on. But once it had been broadcast, not of much use, you might think. When the BBC came to produce a master index of all their programmes against which they could then log any surviving recordings and make them available to the public, where did they go? Radio Times. Because we are the best available written record of what has been broadcast. And in fact, broadcasting is becoming less ephemeral now. As we know, pretty well everything that goes out now, particularly on television, can be viewed again, and it may not even be broadcast. It might be a podcast or streamed. So actually, the value of having kept uh, these runs of Radio Times magazines, and don't forget, it's not just a London edition. Even now, the magazine has four editions. It, it was many more in the past, even with sub-editions for, for local radio. All those details, all those listings of, of the broadcast has actually proved absolutely invaluable for plotting the surviving recordings against so that people can actually find them and listen to them again. And of course, as we know from, you know, or everything that we've been talking about, Radio Times also takes us beyond the, the listing of programmes. You know, it gives us the thinking, the characters behind the programmes. You know, it allows us to explore those broader questions of, 
what is the point of all this? <laughs> what is the value of all this? Uh, what is the value of radio? What is the value of television? And I would say that because of that and because of everything else that's in there, the adverts, good grief, yes, the adverts, which we haven't really talked about very much, but, you know, the adverts represent a kind of week by week, hundred year history of consumerism and consumer tastes and, and, and so on in Britain. You know, I, I would say that you can't really understand the social and cultural history of Britain for the last hundred years, unless you look at the Radio Times. I'd go as far as to say that. There is one tragic absence, I think, in this, which is that the Radio Times, of course, tells us what's being broadcast in Britain. The BBC, of course, has been an international broadcaster, mm. you know, since the start of the Empire Service in the 30s, and especially during the Second World War and after. And of course, that isn't included in Radio Times. How wonderful it would be if we could find a way of capturing all that output in the same way that Radio Times. And I know that there have been magazines that the BBC have produced like London Calling and so on, mm. but they've never had that sort of extraordinary, all-encompassing kind of content and detail that Radio Times has had. So how wonderful would it be to find a way of, of, of discovering a Radio Times equivalent for all of that international broadcasting mm. as well? I agree, but it's worth noting that Radio Times has effectively uh, spawned several you know, other, other titles, London Calling being one that you mentioned, and also very significantly The Listener. Which was spawned, Rafe, as a more thoughtful version of Radio Times, was that the idea? Or a more um, high art version of Radio Times? It was in many ways a way of making radio talks available in print so that whereas now you, you'd go to your iPlayer and just play it again, it was in, it, to some extent an iPlayer of its day for radio, uh, but it, it also uh, included reviews and previews and you know is now regarded, uh, I mean, we have an academic in our company, so perhaps I should let him speak for himself, but I think in, in academic circles it is regarded as one of intellectual publications of its era. It certainly is. I mean, I think, you know, for the for the broadcast historian, you go to Radio Times and you go to the listener and you go to them for slightly different things. But, you know, the, the listener, in many ways, what's what's valuable about that is it prints sort of verbatim the content of of significant talks by significant writers or thinkers or, or artists. And, and uh, it wasn't just about the listener reflecting that kind of broadcasting. It actually allowed the BBC to secure those writers because they could be offered a fee that recognised the fact that they were actually going to be seen in print as well as on air. Radio itself wouldn't offer enough money, but if they were in print a generation of writers and intellectuals who really regarded radio as ephemeral wanted their words to be more permanent. Mm. And so the listener sort of supplied that permanence for them. And of course, we benefit from that now. Do you have any concerns about the future of broadcasting in Britain? And does this history help tell us where it might go next? I think change can be worrying. But the change that's at the heart of television and radio or audio, as we should probably call it, is being driven by technology. But I think what I've found so interesting as I have got to know the readers and what I have found so interesting when we did this huge 21,000 people responded to our recent survey is to discover that actually programs or these days you would call it content. That's what really matters to the viewers and the listeners. And I think if you get the content right, then the future for television and radio and audio in all its forms is as bright and as strong as it has ever been. The question of what happens to public service broadcasting is a different one. But I think the future for television, frankly, I have no worries. I mean, I think there are huge possibilities. Uh, it's, it's, I, it surely can never have had as much money involved in the creation of programs, as many big stars drawn to it, as such a multiplicity of offerings for the viewers as exist now. And uh, with the podcast revolution, we're seeing the same thing happen for radio. But I think the moment people take their eye off creating brilliant programs, you know, whether you're making them to entertain, educate or inform, whatever, then you have problems 
but the important thing is 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 that the viewers and listeners are still responding to brilliant, well-made content. I mean, we've we've been talking about a magazine that's called Radio Times, and it's mostly about television, which is a reminder that. When the BBC started, the people who made the BBC right at the beginning said that it wasn't about broadcasting. It wasn't about radio. It was, in their minds, about making the world a better place. And radio happened to be the tool at hand. And so in one sense, the medium, the device, the platform is less important than the the social purpose to which this extraordinary thing is being put. And that's why the future of public service broadcasting is particularly important. That that notion that for most of Radio Time's history has been captured uh, and for most of the BBC's history, the notion that you have the fullest range of programming available to as many people as possible is, I think, the main challenge of the future. You know, protecting that content the variety of that content and making it available to everyone rather than in sort of subscription-only niches. As an archivist, um, I, I do tend to dwell more on what has happened rather than what is going to happen. I, I wish the BBC and other programme makers had realised decades ago that they were actually building up a huge catalogue of wonderful programmes, not just to be broadcast once or twice and then never to be seen again, but actually going into an archive which could be drawn upon by future generations as well as the same generation that heard them in the first place. And, uh, you know, fortunately, more and more archive content is becoming available, but there's still so much more there. And the more that becomes available, the more actually we need the information, not just on when, in fact, not so much about when the programmes were originally broadcast, but, you know, what was the context of the programme? What was it about? What's the plot line? Because there will be so much choice that it's not just the choice of what's on now, it's what the choice of what could I, can I play from the past? And, and I like to think that the information contained in all those back numbers, which we have digitised now, will be an essential uh, map to people finding wonderful content from the past. Rafe, David, Tom, thank you all so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Rafe Montague, Tom Loxley and David Hendy speaking to Matt Elton. David has written a feature exploring how the Radio Times offers a window into Britain's social history, which appears in the latest issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. And to find out more about the Radio Times centenary, be sure to visit radiotimes.com slash 100. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.